today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the things that I, I think people are really, really getting frustrated about, of course, is, is misinformation and conflicting information from our elected leaders. These are the people that are supposed to be setting policies and telling us what we should be doing or not doing uh, to try to, uh, to stop the, the virus and obviously to try to stay as healthy as we possibly can. Uh, one of those areas here, of course, in Ontario is uh, the closing of schools, the opening of schools, and we, from one day to the next, don't really know what's going on. I mentioned yesterday on the program that uh, Sunday, uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce sent a letter out basically saying that schools are the safest place for kids to be, and their, their priority was to make sure that those kids stayed in school. Uh, Twelve hours later, he's standing beside the Premier saying, no, we're going to shut them down for uh, well, an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, but the Premier sticks by his policies. This is what he had to say. The problem is not in our schools, it is in our community. And bringing our kids back to a congregate setting in school after a week off in the community is a risk that I won't take. Uh, There are those that take exception to uh, the Premier's assertion that the problem is not in the schools and it's in the community, uh, including our next guest, Ryan Ingrid, is a biostatistician and teacher who's been studying this and uh, doing the number crunching. Uh, And, uh, well, the numbers tell a much different story than the Premier seems to be telling us. Ryan, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you can understand how people are getting a little, first of all, mystified by this and, and, and frustrated uh, because we're hearing different messages of Jitsun every day. And we seem to also now, Ryan, be hearing conflicting messages from our elected leaders as opposed to our uh, medical experts in, in many of these situations. Yeah, we're hearing very, very different information. But I think one of the things that we need to point out is that, okay, well, there seems to be this argument about schools. Well, the thing is, when we move schools to a remote environment, we see cases drop. We saw it in Sudbury. We saw it in Thunder Bay. Think back to how Thunder Bay was at the end of January, at the start of February, when they reopened their schools first. They were still in a lockdown, but they reopened their schools first. They didn't have any of these hybrid measures that the GTA has, and Thunder Bay spun out of control. March 1st, Thunder Bay shut down schools again because the cases were so high. Where is Thunder Bay now? They're almost in a green zone with how few cases they have up there. Sudbury followed through March 15th. They were able to drop cases as well. Now, it's interesting because Thunder Bay and Sudbury were in that exact same gray zone as Peel and Latrona were. Those areas saw cases increase. Sudbury, Thunder Bay saw cases decrease. Literally, the only difference in non-pharmaceutical interventions was the closure of schools. If you see that data, why doesn't the government see it? Well, or do they, or do they ignore it? They, they see the data. I mean, I, you know, send out this data all the time. It's seen by hundreds, thousands of people, and there's this willful ignorance about schools. I think the issue is if you choose to look at schools as being a place where you can pass COVID nineteen from one person to the next, you need to invest money in schools. But instead. If we sell this false narrative that schools are safe, we don't have to invest further money in our schools. And we can do things like hand sanitizer and other little measures like that that don't really have any effect. And that's what's being done here in Ontario. We're focusing on not having to spend money in schools by selling that false narrative that schools do not transmit COVID-19. 
So what are we faced with here? I, I think what we want to see is a government that is, is absorbing the information from the medical experts and, and the data, for instance, that you accumulate, and, and, and developing policy along those lines based on that information. What we seem to be getting right now is a government that has a mindset uh, and is developing policy to try to, to validate that mindset, notwithstanding the information that they're getting. That's exactly it. It should be the data telling a story, not a story that we want to tell, and then we pick and choose data that sells that story. It's always interesting. Whenever we hear the minister talk about schools, he runs to these stats about 99.8%, 99.6% this, using these artificially very high numbers instead of numbers. I mean, what I could say is, yeah, sure, 98% of students have never had COVID-19. What I could also say is 13,000 students have had COVID-19. And you can see how those numbers, 98% and 13,000, they tell a very, very different story, and yet they're talking about the exact same thing. Yeah, well, again, that's the whole thing about numbers. I mean, anybody can twist them and turn them to try to suit their own purpose here. Uh, but which is why I guess they're developing policies like this. I mean, I'm talking to a teacher about this a couple of days ago, uh, and of course they're not being immunized. They, should, you know, they're frontline workers in the school system, but apparently, uh, you know, it hasn't happened yet, and as it should be happening, I think anyway. Uh, and I, I said the reason why is because they, they, the, the message they're trying to tell everybody here is that schools are safe, so you're not in any danger of getting it. And he said, well, that's not the case. And I said, well, that's what the government says, and you know, they're, they're the ones pulling the strings right now. Well, it's interesting because here in the, the province, we're in a lockdown where we're shutting things down. We're keeping people at home. Well, it doesn't make sense that we can seemingly transmit this virus inside of a restaurant, but students can't transmit it while eating lunch at a school. We're, you know, we shut down uh, hockey practices. We shut down basketball practices, but students can't transmit it in a gym class at a school. I, I don't understand how one works and one doesn't. But what we do know is that when we lock down, and once again, nobody wants a lockdown, but when we lock down, when we force people to stay at home, like we did in uh, January, we see cases drop. So why are schools any different? Why is indoor eating at a school okay and safe, but indoor eating at a restaurant is unsafe? We need to close down the restaurant, even for outdoor dining. I'm sure you saw the study that was done, uh, published in France, of course, uh, from a, an organization, Paris-based organization called the Institut Economique Molinari, uh, which basically said that you know there are three choices to fight the virus, and and one, of course, is mitigation, which is what we're doing. In other words, kind of you know a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and hopefully not getting too many people ticked off of the government. Uh, the other, of course, was called zero COVID, which basically means we're shutting everything down for like three weeks, four weeks, whatever. Places like New Zealand and Australia did that. Uh, they haven't just flatten the curve, Ryan, with their, they've, they've defeated it. I mean, they did, New Zealand didn't have a second or third wave. It's gone. They, they got rid of it. Uh, yet we seem to be doing things on a piecemeal basis right now, and the numbers are getting worse. Yeah, I strongly feel that here in Ontario, we should be going for a COVID zero approach. I mean, mind you, it's a little bit more challenging when we're seeing around 4,000 cases per day. But even if you don't agree with that philosophy, really what it comes down to is that we should be using data to drive any decisions that we saw. We heard back at the, the government press conferences back on February 11th, we had reporters saying to the modelers with the government right there, you're predicting a disaster in April. Am I getting this wrong? And the modeler's response is, no, you're not getting this wrong. That's February 11th. March the 10th is when I first knew that here in Ontario, we've entered this third wave. 
that's when you need to start to implement some of those restrictions at that time. What does what does Ontario do? We start to open up. We see some regions like York Region say, well, we know we're in the red. We know we're about to enter this third wave, but we feel we should be in orange. No, that's the time that you need to strengthen some of those non-pharmaceutical interventions. But what we did is the second we were about to enter that third wave, we weakened them. And we weakened them when we had a variant that is much more highly transmissible. And that's exactly why we're in this state right now. Instead of acting March 10th and doing something March 10th, we're acting April 10th and doing something way too late. And now we have to come down from a much, much higher case count. And and it was it was the the premier's own panel. I mean, the science panel that that you know they struck to try to be an advisory panel for this. That told him in February, and you and I had that discussion back in those days. Uh, that don't do this. Don't open anything up right now. You a hard lockdown for three weeks, uh, and and we can get this thing under control. And they ignored that advice, as you say. They went the total opposite way and started opening things up uh, against the advice of those experts. And we see what's happened and everything. Especially, I guess the most galling thing is, is I'm sure you saw the quote from. The Solicitor General a couple of weeks ago when she was talking on a CBC interview basically said, well, we didn't move on it because we wanted to see if the projections they were talking about were actually going to come true. In other words, they waited for the worst to happen and then they responded to it. That's that's not leadership. No, that's not. And I think it's, it's interesting because, I mean, sure, the first wave was a little bit harder to model because it's a brand new pandemic. We don't know what's going on. But still, a lot of the modeling um, around like April 2020 was right. Then came the second wave. And around like August, September, a lot of people were saying then, you know what, it's September, you need to act now, you need to make school safer, you need to do these things, or else we're going to see cases go up, and you're going to have to go into another lockdown. What happens around Christmas time? We go into another lockdown. We see cases drop. February comes, we're seeing signs that a third wave is coming. We need to act now. What do we do? We wait for the numbers to come in, and we act two months later. There's a pattern of ignorance by this government, a failure to respond to data, and a failure to respond to modeling that has proved to be accurate. I don't get it. I want to ask you about the vaccine rollout, too, because I know you've been studying that as well, and, and obviously very controversial. Uh, and there's a lot of finger-pointing going on here, and, and you know, and I'm not going to absolve the, the federal government here because I think they've really blown this whole thing. Uh, and you know, the world is watching right now. We're starting to get reports from other jurisdictions now that say, you know, poor Canada, look at how bad things are going up in that country. Uh, and, and that's to a certain extent on the federal government, certainly because they're in charge of procurement. But the dissemination of the vaccines themselves, I have a problem with. Uh, you know, we, we were told there was going to be a priority list and we had some idea as to what they wanted to do. Uh, but I'm hearing a lot more information that it's not going that way at all. And, and, and that's being done in an arbitrary fashion, too. Yeah, it certainly is. And in fact, I'll be honest. Um, I mean, yeah, the federal government is at fault here for not ensuring that we have enough vaccines. But the the provincial government is at fault here for not allowing local public health units and hospitals to do whatever they want with these vaccines. And that seems to be what's happening now. We're seeing health units, we're seeing hospitals vaccinate whoever they feel they should be vaccinating. Um, Here in Toronto, um, we had a hospital in Scarborough um, that said, you know what, we're going to choose to vaccinate these 16-year-old students. Now, yes, there were underlying medical conditions in those students, but they went out to a school, they did a school clinic, and they, you know, hit up these 16-year-old students. They were the only hospital in all of Ontario that vaccinated 16-year-olds. Now, that exact same hospital is saying, we don't have vaccines, so we can vaccinate those that are 50 and up. 
Well, right, because you made your own priorities. And that's what we're seeing. Not just one hospital. We're seeing this at almost every public health unit and every hospital is choosing to vaccinate who they want to vaccinate. But I do think it does come down from the province. They should have said, here's who you're vaccinating. Here's who the vaccines are for. Here's a provincial booking system. Here's what you need to do. Instead, we gave public health units way too much flexibility. We gave hospitals way too much flexibility. And now we're in this mess now that we have 4 million vaccines, but we've only really administered around 3 million of them. I, I saw your tweet about this the other day, too, and how can I phrase this? Some of the people who have received the vaccine, uh, their, their qualifications for getting toward the front of the line is is rather tenuous. I mean, you know, some of these people, as you mentioned in the tweet, are re- working remotely these days, uh, so they're not really on the front line, notwithstanding what their their job title might be. If you're not dealing with other people and you're living uh, out of your home and working out of your home, are you really a, a priority? Are you really a frontline worker? Right. I have no issue with frontline healthcare workers being vaccinated first, even before those that are 80 plus, maybe alongside those that were 80 plus and in long term care facilities. I have no issue with that. I have an issue with healthcare workers that are not facing patients that are 25 years old being vaccinated. I have a huge issue when we have healthcare workers that are in their 20s and 30s that are working remotely, that are able to work remotely being vaccinated. And now we have a hard time vaccinating, you know, 50 year olds that are in hotspot zones where we want to stop cases. We really messed this up from January. We, you know, we called out the hospitals, we called out the public health units, we called out the, the government, and they chose to do nothing. And this once again, fits into the whole theme of this conversation today. We've had a government that hasn't taken leadership here. And when you don't take leadership, you have too many hands in the pot. And we have too many hands in the pot you have too many decisions being made, some which will be right, some which will be wrong. And, and I'm, I'm of the same ilk. I mean, frontline workers to me are, are, as you say, the people that are working in primary care hospitals and things of this nature that are dealing with the public and, and are at risk, you know, and we can go into, you know, first responders. Uh, I still think, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the teachers uh, should qualify for that if they're going to keep the schools open, uh, that they're certainly, that needs to be included. But then we were also told uh, that people that have pre-existing conditions, autoimmune diseases, cancer patients, uh, where their immune systems are, are, are being ravaged by medications and in some cases, sometimes by the disease, that they should move to the top of the list. And that hasn't happened yet either. I just, I, I, they, you know, they're not doing what they said they were going to do. And I think that's causing a great deal of angst in the community. Right. And I agree with that. And I think that's where, you know, some of the, the challenge comes in where, you know, frankly, someone needs to step in and say, you know what, that's an issue. If you have someone that is young, that is immunocompromised, do we vaccinate them before someone that is 50 plus and in a hot spot that is not immunocompromised? I think that's where you could do them in like tandem. You don't have to do one group over the other. You, you open up the booking system and you see who books in those regards right there. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, no, 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 it must be the 50 plus year old. It must be this group right here. And even though there's some public health units that you know, may respond by saying, well, no, no, we're allowing both groups to simultaneously book. Yes, you are, but you're setting aside vaccines for each of those groups. And if you're in some of those groups in some of those areas and you go to get a vaccine, there's no appointments available for the next three to four weeks. But if you're in some of the other groups, you go to the websites, they're available immediately. 
And, and then there's the hot spots. And I, I mean, we're going down a, a shopping list here, I know, but it, it, it's another one of these situations that I think just adds to the concern and the frustration. Uh, they said, here are the criteria to, to qualify as a hot spot here in the province. And some of them are no brainers. Peel region, as you mentioned, places like that. They list, listed 114 different by area code. Four of them don't even meet the criterion, but they're getting, they've been designated as hot spots and they're going to get more vaccines. Uh, those four, by the way, they don't meet the criteria, all have progressive conservative MPPs. Uh, there are five other areas that were excluded from that that exceed the criteria. They're not on the list, uh, which happen to be, uh, coincidentally, I'm supposing, opposition MPPs in the Ontario legislature. Now, of course, the government's denying that politics has anything to do with it. But boy, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I mean, again, it comes back to the idea, should these people be in charge of this? Should there not be somebody who's independently looking at this and doing what's best for the population without any influences about you know, who's doing what? Or who contributed to what? Yeah, the hotspot designations were very, very troubling. They don't. They seem to be based on historical data going back to like April 2020, and we know that this like pandemic changes over time. I think you know the other thing as well, which you mentioned too, is that okay, that's fine if we're doing hotspots, but I think the issue is why don't we introduce some granularity within those hotspots? We don't need to say okay, you live in a hotspot, you're 18 through 49. 18 through 49, let's get you vaccinated. Maybe let's say, you know what, let's start with those that are 40 and up in this hotspot, essential workers. Then we can go down to those that are 30 and up, essential workers, and those that are 40 and up and that are not essential workers. Instead, we're doing this whole like blanket hotspot vaccination, which means that in you know some areas we're seeing, you know, I'll use Scarborough as an example once again, they're vaccinating 16-year-olds because they live in the hotspot, they meet the, the criteria which they have. And in my opinion, nowhere ever should a 16-year-old be vaccinated before a 55-year-old. It just doesn't make sense at all. You look at the mortality data, you look at the hospitalization data, to vaccinate a 16-year-old before someone that is in their 50s, or if you look at some of these northern Ontario communities that haven't received vaccines before someone that is in their 70s, I mean, that really borders on negligence. Ryan, always great to get you on the program. Uh, you, you've got the numbers, you've got the data, and uh, you know, I, I just wish they'd pay more attention to it in the halls of uh, government where they're making these decisions. Uh, we'll certainly stay in touch with you. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Take it easy. You too. Ryan Ingram, of course, biostatistician and teacher, uh, giving you the, the real data about what's going on here. And it's a, it's a very muddled picture at this point, too. And that's just not the sort of thing that we need when we're fighting a third wave like this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.